Good prayer time. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts and chapter 12. Acts and chapter 12. I'm, I'm laughing because I was in a church uh, in um, Jennings, Louisiana, first, second, third, second or third week of October. And uh, they usually have a digital clock sets right up here where those little pocket watch sets. And, um, but their digital clock fell through the hole. It was gone. So I got up and I made a joke about it. You know, I, I just said something dumb about it. I'm not joked about it. And the next night, there was a wristwatch up there, a big wristwatch. And I made a joke about that. And every night, that wristwatch was there. The last night, somebody had gone out and bought a little digital clock. The wristwatch was gone, and the digital clock was taped up there. I made a joke about that. After the service, a man came to me, and he handed me the watch that was up there. And he said, uh, I want you to have this. <laughs> I don't know if that's a hint or not. There's a... There's a big clock back there, and there's a little watch up here, uh, pretty close to the same time. I don't get worried when I'm preaching if people look at their watch. It doesn't bother me. What bothers me is when they get out their calendar. I was preaching in a church some time ago, and some guy got up to leave, and I said, Bob, where are you going? So I'm going to get a haircut. I said, why didn't you get one before you came? He said, didn't need one. <laughs> I don't know if that's a sign of lengthy preaching or not. Anyway, I'm delighted to be here. I'm sorry your pastor had to go out of town for me to come, but <laughs> I am delighted to be here. I appreciate your pastor. What a man of God. What a friend. Acts chapter 12, have you found that? I'm not going to have you stand for the reading as I usually do. You'll understand why I think in a little while. Uh, beginning with verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when they had apprehended him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers, that's sixteen soldiers, take care of one man, uh, delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. I notice the next, uh, the next verse. It says, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison. Notice the next four words. But prayer was made. Those, those four words, whether you realize it or not, literally altered the course of history. I mean, changed the course of church history, which changed the course of, of uh, world history. And I'll explain to you why in a moment. Heavenly Father... Thank you for your precious word, which certainly is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Pray you'd have your will done in every heart. Challenge us tonight. Encourage us. Meet every need. And, oh, God, although this is primarily not a gospel sermon to the unsaved, I do pray that if there is one here tonight who's never been born again, might be a church member, might be a, might be a visitor, I pray that you speak to that one's heart and encourage them in your direction tonight. Have your will done in every heart, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, 
if you know anything at all about the book of Acts, you know that Acts is the book that shows the transition uh, from the, God's emphasis on the Jews to God's emphasis on the Gentile church. In the book of Acts, the first, the first uh, seven chapters are all about the Jewish church and the Jews. It's all about the Jews. The major spokesman, the major character is Peter, the apostle to the Jews. At that point, the, the uh, headquarters for the new church was Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews. And it's all about the Jews. However, when you get to chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, and then into 12, that slowly changes. When you get to chapter 13, um, all of a sudden, Peter's not the spokesman. Peter has passed off the scene, and you never hear from Peter again. Not, not, not in the book of Acts. The spokesman now is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. And the headquarters is not Jerusalem anymore. It's Antioch. And the emphasis is not on the Jewish people anymore because God has temporarily set them aside because of their national unbelief. The emphasis now from that point on is on the Gentile church. I'm not saying that Jews cannot be saved. They can, just like salvation is for anybody. I am saying that God's emphasis now is not on the Jews. It's right now, it's on the Gentile church. Now, that'll change. That'll go back. But that's, that, that's, a, uh, that's for the subject of prophecy. In this particular chapter, the, the persecution against the Jewish church, the Christian church was, was made up mostly of Jews. Excuse me. Was uh, was rampant, um, and the Herod began to uh, he began to point out people in the church who were leaders in this new Christian movement. He began to persecute them, put them in jail, and kill them. He took James, the brother of John. Remember James and John, the apostles. John was the one who wrote First John, Second John, Third John, Revelation, and the Gospel of John. He took James, his brother, and he put him in jail. And then he took his life. He executed it. When he saw that the Jews, the unsaved Jews, were tickled about it to make political points, he picked up Peter and put him in jail. And he had intended to kill Peter on a, a given day. However, he would not because... Uh, it was the Jewish Passover. And he knew that would displease the Jews if he executed somebody on the Passover. So he let Peter stay in jail all night and wait until the next day. I want you to get the picture. Peter, the apostle to the Jews, is still a young man. He's in prison. He's shackled. He has 16... Roman soldiers to make sure he didn't get out. Must have been an ordinary character. And uh, took 16 on the guardian. And he's expecting execution, or he's heard the announcement of execution the next day. However, he's fast asleep. I mean, he's sleeping like a pussycat. I, I used to think, how in the world can I do that? Man alive. I'll be honest with you. If, if, hey, let's just all be honest. 
If you were in jail expecting to get executed the next day for whatever reason, it would bother you. Go ahead. Do this. I'll pay the chiropractor bill. It would trouble you. But Peter was fast asleep. Now, I think there's two reasons for that. One reason is he, he had a special measure of the grace of God. God has promised more than sufficient grace to his children for every hour in life, including the dying hour. Years ago, in fact, it was back in the 90s, it started in the 80s and went into the 90s, I went to the Philippine Islands. I've been about five or six times. On one particular trip over, that was a six-month journey. I'm sorry, six weeks. <laughs> oh, boy, move that clock. <laughs> it was a six-week journey. And uh, just before we, uh, we were on a, a jumbo jet, a Philippine Airlines jet, uh, out of uh, Los Angeles to Manila. And uh, about the last four or five hours of the trip, we hit the tail end of a monsoon. And it felt like somebody had grabbed a hold of the front of that plane, the nose of it, and twisted it. It was doing this and going up and down. The flight crew panicked. Books. I even saw a laptop. Other things were flying through the air. I mean, it was rough. The flight crew panicked. I was buckled in. I was, and the, the, there was a, an older lady next to me, a Filipino lady, and she wasn't buckled in. And it threw her across me. She went across my lap up against the bulkhead. And I offered to, I've got up, we're going to help her back to her seat, but she said she just sat there, so she sat there. I had witnessed to her. And uh, when we got to the Manila airport, she spotted me. And she came to me and she said, Preacher, did you think we were going to die on that plane? I said, No, ma'am, I knew we weren't going to die. She said, How did you know? I said, well, in the Bible, God has promised that I will have grace for every hour of life, including the dying hour, that I have peace. He'd give me grace. And I'm going to be honest with you. I call her by name. I forget what her name is now. I said, I didn't have any grace. I was scared to death. So I knew we weren't going to die. God would have given me grace. Now, Peter is sitting in jail expecting execution the next day, and he's got the grace of God, so he's got the peace of God. But there's a second reason. Back in the last chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus had told Peter that when you get old, when you're an old man, they'll carry you off and crucify you. And Peter is still young. So he knew it wasn't his time. So he slept. Now Peter was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The church had gathered, a, a number of them, we're not told many, how many, at, uh, at the house of one of the members to pray for Peter. Pray that he'd be safe and get out of jail. The Bible tells us in chapter 12 and verse number 5, but prayer was made. Now talk to me, class. Doesn't the Bible say in James chapter 4, you have not because you ask not? 
I got one talk to me. One's not a coward. That, doesn't the Bible say that? In James chapter 4, I think it's verse 2. You have not because you have That indicates that if they had not prayed, Peter might have been executed the next day. I mean, that indicates the possibility. Uh, the truth of the matter is, if they hadn't prayed, the entire uh, the entire history of the local of the church at that point would have gone in a different direction. Those four words, but prayer was made, altered the course of uh, of the history of the church and the history of the world. Do you realize that if they had not prayed and Peter had not been released from jail prior to an execution, that the Jews would be without an apostle? All of a sudden, the Jewish church will not have an apostle, a leader. Not only that, your Bible, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, your Bible would be short to epistles. Because Peter wrote two epistles later on in life. So those four words, but prayer was made. But prayer was made, changed the course of that church and the history of the church at large. Now, what I want you to notice, and this is all runway. We haven't got to the flight yet. I want you to notice how the Bible describes in that verse their prayer. Notice that it says, But prayer was made without ceasing. Now, the word without ceasing is a word that we get our word tendon, T-E-N-D-O-N, from. And it means stretched out without ceasing. Now, it can mean stretched out this way, but it can also mean stretched out this way. Their prayer was an extremely earnest prayer. I mean, they didn't, they didn't bother much about all the fancy, you know, uh, words that sometimes we put to our public prayers to impress the brethren. They meant business about getting their pastor out of jail. Now, listen to me carefully. It's not the words of your prayer that God answers near as much as it is the burden. God honors the burden behind your prayer. Now, as a result of your prayer is just something off the top of your head, it probably doesn't go much higher than that. It's the burden of heart. The Bible says the effectual, fervent, fervent, boiling hot in zeal. Prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Paul begged the church in Romans 15:30. He begged the church at Rome to pray for him. He said, He said, I want you to strive together in your prayers to God for me. That word strive together is taken from one word. The first word, the first part, excuse me, taken from a hyphenated word. The first part of that word means together or alongside of, together with. The second part of that word is the word we get our English word agonize from. So Paul is telling them, I'm in dire straits. I want you to pray very seriously. I want you to agonize in your prayer for me. I'm saying, neighbor, sometimes you and I need to get beyond that mechanical phraseology. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about your private prayer. And we need to get down to some real business in praying. 
Their prayer was earnest without ceasing. Then it says, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church. Now that's corporate prayer. That's group prayer. God honors the prayers of one individual. But if God honors the prayers of one individual, he double honors the prayers of two. And he quadruple honors the prayers of four. God sits up and pays attention when groups together have the same burden and pray. I'll get back to that later. Notice something else about their prayer. It was without ceasing, it was of the church, and it was unto God. That tells me it was headed in the right direction. There is a thing that I call prayerless praying. It's words, but that's all. It's not really praying, it's words. I ask you a question. When you pray, what's your mind on? Is it on yourself? That's selfish. Is it on is it on the brethren, if it's a public prayer, who are listening? And by the way, by the way, the Bible does give us instruction on how to pray in public. You read First Corinthians fourteen. And it tells us that our prayer has to be where others can understand it so they can say amen to it. So if you're praying in public, don't mumble. Speak in words that others can understand. Let them, you're not praying for them. You're praying to him. But the truth of the matter is, God said others need to be able to say amen. You're praying they can't say amen at it if they don't understand it. But notice the emphasis here is, they were praying unto God. Their mind, when you pray, your mind should be on the one to whom you're praying. Not even on your knees. Your mind. If I'm talking to Kenny, if I can get a word in edgewise, if I'm talking to Kenny, my mind is on him. I'm looking at him. By the way, don't you teach your children when, you, when, they're, when they're growing up, when, you, when you're talking to somebody, look at them? I, 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 have, I have some preacher friends. I had one preacher friend years ago. All during the sermon, he, stayed, he stared at that corner. He never looked at the people. I have another preacher friend, even today, who is a good preacher. He's a fine preacher. Pastors a great church. But he doesn't look you in the eye when he preaches. He looks over the top of you. And I get nervous, to be honest with you. I, when I'm talking to you and you're talking to me, look at me. And I'll look at you. I mean, we teach the children that that's, you know, your mind ought to be with the person to whom you're talking. Why when you pray? It ought to be the same way. Your mind shouldn't be on your request as much as it is on God. Make sure your prayer is unto God, not unto self or unto others or unto your need. Then notice something else, and we're still on the runway. The prayer was for him, specific. God honors specific prayers. There's not one general prayer in all of the Bible you know, God bless all the missionaries, heal all the sick, raise all the dead, save all the lost. God doesn't honor general prayers. There's not one general prayer in all of the Bible that God ever answered. Every prayer in the Bible that got an answer was definite, unmistakable, specific, sometimes even miraculous. Those, those kind of answers, when they get answered, you can tell a lost man about and has got to admit there's a God in heaven who answers your prayer. 
Now, I'm not going to preach a bona fide sermon tonight. I don't know what, I know what that is. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to, I hate to use this word. I hate this word. I'm going to share with you tonight. That's a bad word in it. <laughs> Uh, on on four kinds of effective praying. Well, let's face it. There are some prayers that are ineffective. I mean, have you ever prayed for something and not got it? There are some prayers that are ineffective. Doesn't the Bible say in James chapter 5, verse 16, the last half of the verse, the effectual, that means effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man Avails much. Now there's two words in there. Uh, effective and avails. If there's an effective way to pray, there's also an ineffective way to pray. If there's an effective prayer, there's also an ineffective prayer. And our concern tonight is effective praying. Uh, there, there are other kinds. You can classify it differently. But I think this sort of covers all bases. Uh, I'm going to give you four, and we'll just discuss them briefly. I'll do the discussing. If you want to say amen, that's your business. But I'll do the discussing. Uh, there are basically four kinds of effective praying. Number one, there's what I would call closet praying. You know what a closet is, don't you? It's where you hang your clothes. Well, unless they're thrown over the bedpost. <laughs> closet praying. Jesus taught that kind of praying in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, when you pray, don't pray to be heard by others. He said, pray in secret in the closet. Now, he's not talking about going to the place where you hang your wardrobe and praying in there. I did that once when I was a 10-year-old kid, and I was praying for my daddy to be saved. And I, I got, got in there, and the door got shut behind me, and I'm claustro I was claustrophobic, and I panicked. My mother had to come and rescue me, get me out of the closet. Not talking about that. He's talking primarily about your primary prayer time should be a private, intimate thing. We had a man in our church years ago. He's with the Lord now, a great friend. And uh, he used to refuse, until just before he died, he used to refuse to pray in public. He wasn't a member of our church, but he did attend regularly is more faithful than many of the members. And his, his explanation for that was, he says this, to me, and he's right about it, prayer is intimate. So he felt intimidated about praying in front of others. Now he's wrong about feeling intimidated about praying in front of others, but he's right in the idea that prayer is an intimate thing. Prayer that should your primary prayer time ought to be just you and God. I'm for spouses praying together and parents praying with the children. But your primary and most effective and most intimate prayer time ought to be just you and God alone. No telephone, no television. Closet prayer. You'll find many in the Bible who pray. The Apostle Paul was a great closet prayer warrior. You know, Paul got saved when he was, his name was called Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And God went to Ananias and said, I want you to go see Saul of Tarsus. He'd just been saved. Uh, and he sent Ananias to disciple Saul. 
And he sent Ananias to go see him, for behold, he prayeth. Saul of Tarsus had only been saved three days. And he had spent the last three days since his conversion until then in intimate prayer just between him and God. Closet praying. By the way, those four words, for behold, he prayeth, characterized his life. On nearly every page of the book of Acts from chapter 13 on, you'll find Paul, and you'll find him praying. The apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament that we're aware of, we know of. He wrote from 1 Corinthians through Philemon. And every one of those epistles, he either said... I'm praying for you. Or he asked them to pray for him. And one or two of them you'll even find his prayer that he prayed. There's only one epistle that he did not say that to or about. And that was the epistle to the Galatians. And they had some serious problems he had to deal with. But everything Paul knew what it meant to uh, foreclose prayer. I think of Daniel. I think of Daniel in the lion's den. Every day, every day, Daniel, being a faithful Jew in Babylonian captivity, would swing his window open and face toward the direction of Jerusalem, his home city. Every day he'd pray. And some of his enemies heard about it. They didn't like Daniel. They knew the king favored him. So they went to the king and they said, Oh, king, how about for the next period of time, why don't you pass a law that anybody who prays to any god but you goes in the lion's den. I forget the length of time. Was it 30 days, something like that? And uh, they knew that would get Daniel in trouble. Daniel heard about the law. You know what he did? Went to his private prayer place, opened his window toward Jerusalem, and prayed just like he always did. Didn't do it to intimidate them. He did it because that was his habit of life. Now, can you imagine Daniel in the lion's den? He's all alone down there, except for them overgrown pussycats. And Daniel, while the king is pacing the floor and can't get to sleep because he's worried about Daniel. Daniel's fast asleep. And he's got his head probably nestled in the mane of one lion and his feet on the fat belly of another lion. And he's praying. Uh, now, now, now that's closet prayer. The main portion of your prayer life and the main activity and the main intensity of your prayer life ought to be in the closet. Jesus was one for private prayer. You'll often find Jesus praying in the Bible, in the, in the Gospels, but you'll never find him praying with the disciples. Prayed in their presence, but praying with them. You never prayed with them. And you'll never find him asking them to pray for him. There was a couple of occasions where, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, he dropped the disciples off, and then he took three a little closer and dropped them off. Then he went a little farther, and he spent three hours in prayer. Took a break, two breaks, one between each hour, to come out and check on the sleepy disciples, the dozing disciples. Jesus... He practiced private prayer. 
Now, that ought to be. That ought to be. That, hey, this is prayer meeting. Let's talk about prayer. That ought to be. Uh, why, why don't you do that? Why, why don't you analyze your own prayer life? I'm talking about your private prayer life, your intimate, your... You know, the truth of the matter is, loneliness without God is hell on earth. But solitude with God, you'll never get any closer to heaven on earth than that. Uh, closet praying. There's closet praying. Uh, you'll find many other accounts in the Bible of people who practiced closet praying. Um, Paul put it this way in Romans 1.19, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. It was a Great prayer warrior. Closet praying. Then there's what I would call con continual praying. Go make it real easy for Kenny to write it all down if he knows how to do the letter C. Because they all begin with C. It's called alliteration. Um, continual praying. The Bible, you know, there are some things that when you pray, the answer comes right away. I, I don't know. You have probably done this. I've done this on occasion. Get out on my knees to pray for something, and then he got out and went to the mailbox, and there it was. I mean, God sent the answer before, before I prayed. I'm sure that's happened to you on occasion. Sometimes God does that. However, sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes He'll just let you wait and sweat it out for your own good. Continual praying. There are some things that you have to, you know, you don't pray through to get saved. God is more eager to save you than you ever will be to be saved. Salvation is instantaneous. However, after you're saved, there are some things that you have to pray maybe a long time for. In Luke chapter 18, the first eight verses, Jesus told a parable. To this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And he told about a certain judge in a certain city. That judge had no regard for man and no, no, no faith in God, and he had no regard for the faith of others. And there was a widow in that city. You know the parable. That widow, while her husband was living, had a lot of money, and she loaned some to a friend. I know the Bible says adversary. This is a parable. We'll get there in a minute. You don't loan money to enemies. You loan money to friends. And uh, her husband died. Her money was running out. The bill collectors were about to collect her. And her family had put him in jail or sell him as slaves to pay the bills. And that woman who could pay the money back that she owed was refusing to now... She's not a friend anymore. She's an adversary. And so that lady had no other recourse. The widow, she went to the court. I don't know if it was Judge Judy or who it was, but she went to court. And the judge said, next case, she stood forward. Now, I don't know what it was about her, but something about her turned him off. She told him the story, that the parent, she told him the story, like I just told it to you. And she said, Judge, the bill collector is about to get me. 
I don't want my children sold as slaves. She couldn't pay the money back. She owes it. It's a just due debt. Make her pay. The judge said, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't care about you and your need. Get out of here. Something about her turned him off. We don't know how long she kept coming, but every single day she showed up. One day, maybe weeks, maybe months, I don't know, later, he said, next case, and guess who stepped out of the crowd? And she said, Judge, something like that. Judge, you see this mug? You're going to see it every day until you make her pay. It's just that it's, it's your job to do it. And finally, he said, I'm already seeing you in my nightmares. He said, all right, all right, all right. I'll make her pay. I don't care about you or your need, but I'm tired of seeing you. That'll get rid of you. Bailiff, make that woman pay. Now notice how God applied the parable. Jesus applied the parable. Jesus likened the unjust judge to God the Father. And he said, now hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry unto him day and night, though he bear long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. And by the way, then he said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, what do you find that kind of faith on the earth? Faith in prayer doesn't ask and then quit. Faith keeps on asking until the answer comes. What do you think it is that makes you keep on asking? The faith that if you keep on, the answer will come. You can read Luke 11, 1 to 13. You'll find one of the things that you have to pray a long time for is the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. I mean, in that passage, Jesus taught. In that passage, it wasn't friendship and it wasn't fellowship that got the prayer answered. It was importunity bugging him to death. There are some things that you need to pray continually about. Jesus embarked on his ministry as a 30-year-old man shortly after he was baptized by John the Baptist and filled with the Spirit. Shortly after he entered the ministry, he realized he was going to need some men to carry on. After he was gone, or the church would fizzle out. Movement. So he's going to choose 12 apostles to train, sink himself into. Before he dared choose the apostles, the Bible says he spent all night long in prayer. Just to get, I mean all night long, just to get the wisdom of the Father about that decision. Hey, if the Son of God had to spend all night in prayer to make a wise decision in that place, what makes you think you can make wise decisions with just a quick probably want to cracker prayer? Sometimes God does answer right away, but much of the time He, he makes you keep coming back for your own good, teach you some lessons. And that's continual prayer. The Bible talks a lot about it. Um, well, we don't have time. But that, the, the Bible, what about Acts chapter 1 and verse 14? It says 120 disciples prayed for 10 days that God would bless on the day of Pentecost. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? 
over 3,000 got saved, and 3,000 of those who got saved got baptized and joined the church. Answer to prayer. Some things God will answer right away. Some things He'll answer even before you get the words out of your mouth. But some things He'll make you wait a long time. Don't give up. By the way, if you're going to persist in prayer about some matter, if I were you, if you're not sure that it's the will of God, you'd be wise to pray like Jesus did in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Uh, if you know it's the will of if you're praying for the salvation of an unsaved loved one, you know that's the will of God. The Bible tells us, then, then don't ever give up. Okay, what happens? Never quit until they get saved. But if there's something you're not sure about, you'd be wise if you're going to continue uh, to, to ask God, if it's not of you, change my heart about it. The truth of the matter is, you can pray for the wrong thing. God answer it. You bug him enough about it, he'll give it to you. He did with the well, he did many times in the Old Testament. And so make sure that you include in your prayer, nevertheless not my will but thine be done. Closet praying, continual praying. Then the third C is corporate prayer. We've talked about that. We did some of that tonight. Hopefully, while the brother was praying up here, Brother Kenny or this brother well, praying up here, you were praying. That's corporate prayer. Now, I go to some places where they all gather around together at the altar and they all pray out loud, all at the same time. Now, that's kind of confusing, but it's not to God. God can sort it out. Um, if you go to those kind of prayer meetings, don't try to outshout each other. You're not talking to each other anyway. <laughs> I went to, a, I went to, I was at Brother Carl Sutherland's one time and we were down to the, I was standing down at the bottom of that big hill, you know, outside the front of this church, that huge, steep hill. And they said, we're going to go up the hill to pray. I said, you might. I'm going to pray down here. Brother Carl got halfway up the hill with the others and turned around and said, come on, Andy. Come on, Andy. I said, nothing doing. God can hear me down here as they can. Well, as it come up there. I <laughs> um, don't know why I said that, but that was fun. Corporate prayer. You know, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 19, the Bible says if two of you, two, you know what that is? That's just double one. If two of you shall agree on earth, that's where we are, as touching anything, then ask it in his name. God promised to give it. Now, wait a minute. He did not say if you agree about anything. There's a difference uh, between agreeing about something and agreeing as touching. If Brother Kenny and I both have the same burden, then maybe I got a burden for something, and I, I went to Kenny, and I laid it on his heart, and we both agreed to pray for that thing. That's not agreeing as touching. That's agreeing on. However, if God, unbeknownst to him, lays a burden on my heart, and I've said nothing to him about it, but God lays the same burden on his heart unbeknownst to me. And somehow, because we're in church together and we fellowship together, somehow we get to fellowshipping and we discover we both have the same burden. That's agreeing as touching. I didn't lay it on his heart. He didn't lay it on mine. That's what Matthew 18, 19 means. 
Jesus said, if you have a burden for something, if you fellowship and talk it up enough, maybe you'll find somebody who's got the same burden. And you can claim that promise. God promised to answer. Corporate praying. Closet praying. Corporate. I said that, didn't I? Con closet praying. Continual praying. Corporate praying. Then there's the last one, quickly. And I call it critical praying. When I say critical, I don't mean you're criticizing somebody. I mean critical in the sense that the doctor would say he's in critical condition. I mean crucial. I mean desperate. That kind of prayer. Some things you might get by a casual prayer. There are some things that don't come by casual prayer. By the way, the power of the Holy Spirit to win others to Christ is one of those things. You read that passage in Luke 11, verse 13 verses. It's not casual praying that gets some things. It's crucial praying, desperate praying. Paul told the church, he begged the church. Hey, he's in prison when he wrote to the church at Rome. He expected to visit them one day. He didn't start that church. He'd never been there. He was eventually on a government-sponsored missionary journey there. He was a prisoner. They told them, I'm begging you, agonize in prayer for me. I need your prayers. There are some things, you know, I'll be honest with you, when, you, when it hits home, you get a little more serious about it, don't you? If it's just somebody you hear about in the neighborhood or even in the church family, you might not be too awful serious about it. But it's home. You get serious about it. All of a sudden, that cold, formalistic, off the top of your head prayer, that prayerless prayer, becomes a real burden. And you just keep in mind it's not the words that God honors near as much as He does the burden of heart. The Bible calls that in Luke 11, 1 to 13, importunity. Now I repeat, you do not pray through to get saved. God is more eager to save you than you are to be saved. But after you're saved, there are some things you might have to pray a long time for. I prayed for my daddy. I got saved when I was 10 years old. And no, that wasn't before water. I, my Sunday school teacher led me to Christ at his home, told me, he said, if you'll pray every day for your mom and dad, they'll be saved. I prayed for my daddy for 35 years. At least once a day, minimum. Minimum once a day. That's over 17,500 times. 35 years. God saved me. God saved about a year before I went to be with the Lord. Miraculous change in his life. I'm saying there are some things that you'll get by prayer asking. You might get them right away. Some things, there are some things that might be in the mailbox before you pray. There are some answers that don't come until you've prayed a long time. But if you're convinced that it's something God would be pleased for you to have, as long as you're convinced of that and you carry the burden, you just keep on praying. The Bible talks about it. You know, when they prayed, when the church prayed for Peter to get out of jail, not be beheaded. I guarantee you they were sincere about their prayer. They were so sincere about it 
when Peter got out of jail and he went and knocked on the door, and a little girl named Rhoda, Rhoda means rose, her faith must have smelled like a rose to Jesus. She got up and she ran to the gate. She saw Peter's hand and she recognized him. She didn't even unlock, un get the gate unlocked. She ran back inside and said, Peter's here! Peter's here! Pastor Peter's out of jail! Peter's here! You know what they said, don't you? He's going to be executed. They're probably done it already. It's probably his ghost. They wouldn't even believe it. But I will guarantee you this. That indicates not only their faithlessness, but it does indicate that they were sincere about their prayer. They wanted their pastor out of jail. I'm sure that if Brother Boer ever got put in jail for preaching the gospel, he'd sure appreciate your earnest prayers. But there are some things you and I uh, do have to pray, uh, you know, maybe not lengthy, but more sincere than about all. I know. Remember Peter? Uh, when Jesus had sent, put the disciples on the boat and sent them across the Sea of Tiberias, a very stormy lake, and went up into the mountaintop to pray for him because he knew there was a storm coming. He created the storm. And he prayed for them and from, from, uh, from that evening all the way to sometime between 3 and 6 in the morning, the fourth watch of the night. Then he came down off the hill, walked on the water, and became part of the solution. At first, they thought it was a ghost. They said, it's a spirit. And Jesus said, be of good cheer. It's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter said, in faith, Lord. And then he said, in doubt, if it's you. And then he said, in bold, reckless faith, bid me come on the water. And Jesus said, Peter stepped out on the water. He got too far away from the boat for them to help him. If he began to sink, God gave Peter the ability to walk on the water. All of a sudden, fear welled up in his heart. Peter began to sink in that black, dark, stormy night. He began to go down. He didn't have time to pray. Oh, thou great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, thou great God of Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and all the bold boys. He didn't have time to do all that stuff. He prayed, Lord, save me! It wasn't a lengthy prayer, only three words, but I'll guarantee it was an earnest prayer. And God saved him. Jesus picked him up, put him back in the boat. I'm saying God honors, God honors, God honors closet praying. God honors continual praying. God honors corporate praying, group praying. And God honors crucial, desperate praying. Now listen to me carefully. If you're not saved, I, 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 don't, sound, I don't mean to sound uncaring. But if you're not saved, there's not one single promise in all of the Bible that God will answer any prayer of yours. Other, of course, than the prayer to be saved. I doesn't say he won't. He might, out of the goodness of his heart. But he's not obligated to. I mean, if, um, what's his name again? Corey, same thing at the same time as last time I asked you, wasn't it? Same name. If Corey come to me and said, 
Well, until I got a hole in the bottom of my shoes. You buy me a new pair of shoes? Don't get your hopes up, kid. Well, you know, I, 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 I might out of the goodness of my heart take him down to the Salvation Army and buy him a brand new pair of shoes. Fifty cents. Well, I'm not obligated to. You know why? Ain't my kid. He's obligated to. If you're not saved, the Bible says in John 8, 44, you're of your father the devil. I was talking to a friend of ours one time, a lost man, an agnostic. Well, that's pretty close to an atheist. And he said, Andy, I prayed, and God didn't answer my prayer. What do you think? I didn't say it on the outside, but on the inside I was saying, why don't you leave my father alone and go talk to yours? I'm saying, neighbor, if you're not saved, you don't have one single promise in the Bible. He might, but he might not. Not a single promise in the Bible. Other than the prayer to be saved. When someone falls and they change their heart and they turn to Jesus Christ, God is more willing to save that person. All they can do is ask than that person could ever be. God is more eager to save them. So if you're not saved, I urge you to turn to Jesus Christ. By the way, it would be a good idea before it's too late. If you are saved, I have a question for you. How's your prayer life? I mean, you examine it. It's nobody else's business. How does it stack up? Let's stand together for prayer. I don't know if you hold invitation or not. On say what let's do. We're not going to have any music, and uh, it's more difficult to respond to an invitation when there's no music.